Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, welcome and thank you. And we wanted to let you know the Talent Talk Radio Show features a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. So on this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully you see how that works. The word talent has a couple different meanings here in the business world, and this show looks to explore that as best we can. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, recruiters, authors, all kinds of interesting people that I'm fortunate to meet at networking events, industry conferences, and roundtables all the time. So when I meet these inspiring leaders, I often think that uh, it'd be great to, to take what they know, ask them as many questions as I can, learn when I can, but we decided, hey, let's put this on a show and let's hopefully take our dialogue that we're going to have and Turn that into some practical advice that can help your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guest today, I want to thank those of you tuning in live. Don't forget, you can submit your questions via Twitter. Just uh, tweet them to at PeopleG2. Use the hashtag TalentTalk. And my producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions, and we'll try to work them into the show. Uh, also, don't forget, you can uh, listen to this show and past shows uh, via iTunes or Android and the other uh, mediums to get into a podcast. We have well over 15,000 people who are tuning in via the podcast uh, stream each and every week, and we really appreciate uh, you doing that when you're in the car or at a boring meeting or on the treadmill or wherever you're choosing to uh, to listen to us. We appreciate it. With that being said, let's get today's show started. My, my guests today are Jeff Dunn, the Campus Relations Manager and Senior Recruiter of the Intel Corporation, and uh, Kevin Cruz, New York Times bestselling author and keynote speaker on leadership. Kevin will be joining me in the second half of the show, so let me get to my uh, first guest. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're currently doing over there at Intel. Sure. So so I've been doing corporate recruiting work for about 20 years, and I've been at Intel for the last five. And my current role is campus relations manager, and um, as such, my primary job is to manage Intel's relationship with UC Berkeley and the University of Wisconsin. So we do career fairs, we do events and talks, we meet with faculty, we coordinate activities with student groups. And then as well, I also do PhD-level recruiting for one of our large manufacturing groups. That keeps me pretty busy. So as the campus relations manager, you really have to kind of have your finger on the pulse of those that are up and coming or will kind of be right in the in the spotlight of what your company needs. What is it you look for when you're out there recruiting talent for Intel? Well, I'll tell you, certainly the I recruit engineers and, and a lot of software people, so the, the technical degree and discipline and the, the grade point average are sort of the, the price of admission. But beyond that, really a lot of the success, because a lot of people meet those minimum qualifications, then what we're really, really looking for is fit within Intel. 
That is the, the soft skills. So someone that's analytical, someone that has good creative problem-solving skills, uh, people that are resourceful, um, good communication skills, and, and good team players because no one can do the work by themselves. And I don't mean team player like, hey, everything is warm and fuzzy. I mean like collaborators, good communicators, delegators. Um, those are the people that are going to be successful and last in the organization. Yeah, and that, and do you find that can be a bit more of a challenge given the kind of the technical side of, of the people that you're bringing in that they they aren't as maybe uh, extroverted or maybe that they you know it's maybe harder to gauge their whether they're going to fit into the culture. Well, it's always hard to find the top talent, however you define it. And when you're looking for combinations of technical skills, maybe coursework they've taken or prior internships, as well as people that have adequate interpersonal skills, it, it narrows down very quickly. So however your managers define an A candidate, um, when you start narrowing it down and looking at grades and everything else, um, there's always competition. Somehow the people that really dazzle you in the interview, all the other competitors line up to want them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you were a recruiter for Intel for about a year, and then you kind of went off and, and did some other work for some health organizations and then came back to Intel. So you know, how did those experiences kind of help shape your own personal leadership and, and approach to talent development? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, of course, different industries have different cultures, and they have different items that when you're talking to candidates, what you're selling them on the opportunity is different. Um, yeah, I'd worked at a healthcare organization. It was a smaller organization, so very different culture and environment. You, when you're with a small company, you wear many different hats. You have smaller budgets, and the processes are less defined. So it teaches you to adapt. Um, you have to document everything that works and, and certainly what doesn't. And then uh, it also helps you relate to coworkers and people at all different levels. So all of those experiences, when you come to a large company, like Intel, um, are helpful because you you tend to get more specialized. You focus on one thing, but there's always a subject matter expert you can go to if you can track them down. So from a you know comparison, if you can do this, I mean, being in healthcare versus being in, you know, we're now recruiting for technology and engineering, do, do you find that there's something, some real tangible differences in, the, in, in what you're looking for or the type of people that you're, you're bringing in as far as you know, what really makes them unique or makes them stand out as being, a you know, an A player uh, for the organization? Well, certainly for, for a semiconductor firm, you're looking for people that have exposure to the latest technology, so the latest hardware and software and operating systems and networks. So it has to do with, with I think, being a lot more strategic, a lot more forward-thinking, and the ability to solve problems where there isn't a defined process, there isn't a roadmap. So, for example, the, the PhDs I recruit for in the manufacturing group, they're trying to build, you know, put more chips on a transistor, and that's never been done before. So they have to try, take informed risks, really truly think outside the box when they're trying to solve these issues. So, you know, you get to kind of interact with, it sounds like, some young people, and then you also some some very accomplished people that, you know, I'm assuming your PhDs, are, they're not going to be as young as some of the ones that you're dealing with at the campuses you mentioned. So you, you kind of have a mix there, but do you find that you're kind of giving them maybe some similar advice or, if any, that 
really goes to the heart of, of developing their skills and talents and trying to stay ahead of the game. Because, I mean, you just mentioned one of the things is that they need to be exposed to kind of what's happening, the newest things that are going on. So in, in any way, is that a part of the process that, that you entertain in, in trying to help these people be successful long-term for the organization? Sure, absolutely. So so at Intel, we, we one of our marketing pitches is that, you know, welcome to your next 10 careers because there's so much opportunity to move around within the organization. But mm-hmm. um, as the market changes, as technology changes, as the company does reorgs, et cetera, you've got to stay current with your skills. So, you know, as we look for people that are continuously learning, it's not like you go to school and then you stop learning and you just kind of kick back. Um, if you do that, you'll fall behind. So what I tell people to be successful is you want to continually learn, stay sharp technically and professionally. You want to build your networks so you have a bigger sphere of influence. You hear about opportunities sooner. And find a mentor. There's, If you look, there's always people willing to be a mentor, and, and you can learn from uh, mistakes they've made, and they may help give you guidance on on where to take your career next. Well, it certainly sounds like you have a, a, a lot of good advice and and, um, and direction for those people coming in. So I'm wondering if maybe there was an individual or individuals that you you can kind of point your finger at or identify who had the greatest impact on your leadership development and kind of why you are in the place that you are today. Yeah, that's also a really good question. You know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of managers over my career, even before Intel, and everyone teaches you something, even if it's, you know, behaviors that you don't want to role model. Right, what not to do. <laughs> but uh, my, my previous manager at Intel before she retired was probably the best manager I've had because she really let me work independently. Um, she always recognized me when I was successful, and she always supported me or, or suggested alternatives whenever I got stuck. So I really appreciated that she wasn't micromanaging. She let me do things. One of my passions for people that know me is I like helping people with job search strategies. She said she let me go out on campus and talk to students, whether or not I could hire them at Intel, about resume tips and networking tips and interviewing tips. And I like to add value like you. I like to add value for your listeners. So mm-hmm. if I can help people, they're going to think positively of me and by association for Intel and Maybe they'll refer someone to me. So, and, and you know, it's really interesting we're talking today. Uh, one of the guests we had on a few weeks ago mentioned a book called Give and Take by uh, Adam Grant, and, and he even uses engineers in some of his examples about how people are really successful in being givers is one of his, you know, kind of main categories. I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of the book or not, um, but you know, you're really describing what he kind of outlines as a successful person is building your network, doing these things for other people, and it may necessarily is going to benefit you or Intel directly, but it might, but you're kind of going back out there and, and giving back and trying to help. And that tends to really be an important part of what a successful person does. But one of the other things that we've noticed with our guests is that a lot of times successful people also pick something they're really bad at and they really work to get good at it, and, and that's a kind of a game changer for them. And I'm wondering if you have a, any examples of that. There's something you identified about yourself that you realized you just weren't very good at, but it was important for you to be, and you had to work at it, and, and maybe you could kind of talk about what you did to overcome that. How long is your show? <laughs> I could probably talk about a lot of areas. Um, right. You know, one, one area that comes to mind is um, event management. 
know, I've done a lot of things where I'm given specific tasks and I can knock them out in 10 minutes or an hour. But when you're a campus relations manager, you're visiting multiple universities. Sometimes you take a trip and you've got multiple events over a couple of days. And you have to sort of become very detail-oriented and sort of work backwards based on deadlines and coordinate uh, people to help you on campus or what groups you're going to visit. And, and you're influencing people that you're not managing. So you're, you're having these volunteers that are either speakers or helpers at a career fair. So it's a lot of recognizing and appreciating them for taking time out of their primary job to help you mm-hmm. and making sure you've got all your points of contact, you know, your, your travel details are set and, you know, you account for weather and traffic and, and those kinds of things. And then you show up, you're a little beat up from the travel and then you're on and you're happy and you're promoting the company to the students and, you know, you're standing for five hours and meeting 300 students and always trying to be as excited with the last student as you were with the first student. So I think event management is one of those things where, you know, I've, I plan a lot beforehand. I make sure I get my sleep before the events. And then when I get there, it becomes a lot easier to just uh, have a successful execution of the events. Yeah, and you're doing those on a regular basis. I imagine it's quite taxing. I mean, it's a, it's high intensity, high energy, a lot of planning, and, and uh, you, you probably sleep really well that night once you're done. You bet. <laughs> So I, I mentioned to you one of the books that one of our, our listeners, or excuse me, one of our guests uh, mentioned to us, and it's one of our favorite questions to ask because we learn so much about new books and, and new ways of thinking and, and what, what we think uh, important people out there are, are, are putting their attention to. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions or books that you're reading right now that you might tell us about. I'm, I'm just finishing a book called Switch. It's by Chip and Dan Heath, and it talks about how to deal with change, both sort of from the head and from the heart. And I've always heard that people make decisions a lot based on emotions, and they will then justify them with facts. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the interesting points that the book makes is that, um, you know, you can throw a lot of data at someone, but that doesn't always change their behavior. So if you want to help employees make lasting changes to their behavior, you also have to reach them on an emotional level. Yeah, and that's a fantastic point. Which is great. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've kind of been exposed to that concept in a couple of different books in different ways. One, the first time was from a negotiation book uh, called uh, Start With No. And, uh, you know, it gets to, everyone believes that we make such calculated and objective type decisions, but you're right, it was perfectly said, we actually make emotional decisions that then we justify intellectually. Um, and so if we feel safe, if we feel happy, we feel sad, we, we whatever it is, it's this emotion that you have to deal with. Um, and it sounds like an interesting book if, if it really kind of dives into how to, how to help people switch or how to make those changes uh, if you're dealing on an emotional level first. Uh, and what was the author's name again? Uh, it's uh, Chip and Dan Heath, H-E-A-T-H. Great. I'm sure our listeners would like to check that out. So, you know, one of the, the things that uh, we love to learn from our our guests is kind of about the creative process, and I'm not sure how much of this you get to do if you're you're kind of dealing with a new set of people all the time. But if if you have a creative process or brainstorming uh, kind of exercises or things that you do with within your organization, we certainly would love to know what you what's working for you and what you're seeing. You know, really be effective. 
So, so one of the things that, that we do, you know, there's an expression thinking outside the box, you know, creative thinking and, and really sort of starting from scratch and revisiting past decisions that you've made to come up with new strategies. And, and we embrace that at Intel. But one of the things that happens is if you, if you come to a meeting cold and someone says, okay, let's brainstorm a bunch of ideas, you're not really, you haven't been thinking about it. So one of the strategies we've used is whenever we have a, a meeting coming together to make some important decisions, there's always some pre-work that goes out beforehand. We're asked to jot down some ideas or think of some solutions coming in so that we're ready to actively engage in the discussion. And then we can think about the pros and the cons and who needs to make the decision and budget implications and those types of things. So then we have a, a much more focused, much more intelligent conversation, and we can actually make a decision in the meeting versus going back and thinking about it and you know, coming back a, a second time. Right. Well, and that's really important. I, we, we have certainly have heard that idea before that giving people the opportunity to know what's going to happen ahead of time allows them to do research, allows them to think about it, and to really come to that meeting with a better understanding of what you're talking about. Instead of everyone brainstorming and saying, well, now we've got to go back and find out if that's even feasible, people can come with, you know, educated answers and information that really can allow that process to, to blossom right then and there while the energy is good and, uh, you know, it's really front and center on everyone's mind. And, and people feel talking about the emotional impact again. People feel better about the decision because they've had a chance to process it, so they sort of buy in emotionally to the decisions that are made because they've kicked it around in their head beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that we, we notice that uh, talent managers and HR people do tend to struggle with and are always looking for, for kind of great ideas is, is around the idea of how do you get people to, to develop their own talent? I mean, we, you know, as an organization, we can send people to conferences and we can give them books to read and we can, we can kind of push them in directions. But ultimately, what, what, what's the most effective in my mind is when we encourage people and get them on their own looking to develop themselves in some way, whether it's directly related to their job or it's an external thing that's not directly related to their job. But that process of trying to, to better yourselves seems to be a really important component of a great uh, workforce. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any perspectives on that or things that Intel does or that you do that kind of fall into that category. Sure. So um, one of the things we start with is, is every quarter we're going to sit down. We're not going to wait till like an annual performance review. Every quarter employees will sit down with their managers and talk about how they're doing and where they want to go in their career and what kinds of development opportunities they're looking for. So you kind of have a strategy and an end game of, okay, where do you want to be a year from now or two years from now? And based on that, you know, development opportunities come up. Maybe you're going to cover someone's sabbatical. Maybe you'll take a rotation assignment. Our philosophy is that you're not going to load up on classroom training to be successful. That might be 10 or 20 percent of of the effort, but to really develop yourself, there's going to be a small amount of classroom, some amount of working with a mentor, and really a lot of on-the-job stuff. You're going to seek out assignments that complement your core skills. You're going to look for ways to volunteer. So, for example, I have people that think they want to get into college recruiting, and I invite them to come with me to an event to see what it's really like. So they get a real taste of, you know, it sounds glamorous, but you know, there's there's some things that maybe are less glamorous once you've actually done it. And they realize, oh, I had no idea what was involved with this. So, mm -hmm. 
uh, a lot of different ways to to develop a talent, but no substitute for actually doing the job a little bit real time. Right. And because you're kind of dealing with some very specific talents uh, with engineering, technology, and, and the PhDs you mentioned, I'm wondering how much you've observed, you know, that this quality or this idea of that loving what you do really kind of drives your success. How much do you think that that really plays into not only the people coming into your organization, but the most successful people uh, who you've recruited into your organization? How, how does that love and that passion for what they're doing and possibly even for what the company's doing play into that role? Well, I think having a passion is critical because we spend more time at our jobs than we do with our families. And if you don't love at least most of what you do, long-term it's going to drain your energy, it's going to stress you out, and you won't have that extra fuel that you need you know, to overcome the hurdles and really sustain long-term success. Mm-hmm. If you are passionate, if you do truly love what you do, you're probably going to do it well, you're going to be happier, healthier, and you know, the most successful people will tell you they don't feel like they're even working. Right. If they really enjoy what they're doing, time just flies by. Yeah, and for those people, it often seems like it's what they're doing that really helps that, you know, feel like time is just flying by and they're not really working. It's, you know, they love, you know, doing accounting or they love uh, that, you know, they're hosting a radio show, whatever it may be, right? So that specific thing that they're doing. And, and then the second part of that is that you can really get great buy-in and, and, and kind of, I think, overall life happiness if, if you're in love with the culture and, and what the organization is doing as well, because you can certainly love what the organization is doing and, and, and the culture, but you could hate your individual job. You know, you could hate the, or not have a great passion for the very specific project you're working on or what you're doing from a talent standpoint. So it always feels like a good mix really seems to help people uh, achieve that goal that I think a lot of us really desire to have. Well, it does, and, and I'm a big fan of the book Strengths Finder 2.0, and uh-huh. uh, one of my strengths is Maximizer, which means I try to play to people's strengths. I don't treat people like cookie cutters. So some people really like working with data. Some people like public speaking. Some people like to teach. I don't think you want to force everyone to do all those activities in equal parts. You know, Focus on their strengths. Let them leverage those and do more of what they're good at. And don't worry about trying to get them from below average to, you know, above average if it's just not something that they're they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great book. Uh, we did an exercise in our within our organization and had everyone, you know, go through that process. And uh, I certainly recommend to anyone. It was very inexpensive. It was I don't know five or ten bucks a person or something to kind of get that initial uh, 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 categorizations of, of where you were. And it really helped people understand where we were, and actually as an organization, we took a, and we looked at where everyone else fit in, and we kind of noticed where we were missing. We had a few of those uh, personality types where we did not have anyone in the organization who fit those categories. And so we've actually have thought about, well, the next time we hire someone, maybe we should look at trying to make sure we get someone who fits in those so we're a little bit more well-rounded and we have people that can handle different types of things. Um, you know, not just that I was an achiever and a relator was some of the ones that I had and and a lot of other people had those, which makes sense because I'm, I'm doing a lot of the interviewing and the hiring, but there were other ones that we thought we might be really good to make sure we have those, uh, to, to keep our organization, you know, strong in the long run. 
So it's, it's yeah, a, you get more balance that way. Right, definitely, definitely, and probably get more perspectives and ideas about things we would have never thought of looking at it a certain way because everyone in the room is kind of thinking about things, you know, in a similar way, um, which can be great for culture sometimes, but sometimes that can keep you from finding new solutions and being creative and innovative if you're not kind of having a, a, a polite argument all the time, you know? <laughs> if, if you have a diversity of ideas, you're likely to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're, we're just about here at the end, and I really appreciate you being on uh, the show today and, and kind of sharing with us what, the, the unique uh, job that you have in bringing in such uh, uh, diverse talent in, into Intel. Uh, one of the last questions I want to ask you is uh, how can people reach out and learn more if, if they would like to, to, to do that? Sure. Uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, Jeff Dunn, Campus Relations Manager for Intel, or they can email me at jeff.m.dunn, D-U-N-N, at intel.com. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, I and mean, hopefully we can have you back at some point and give us an update on what you're doing and how the, the organization is doing as well. Sure thing, Chris. Thanks for having me on. All right. Kevin Cruz is coming up after this quick commercial break. to pioneers in their respective industries. We all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. And if you're looking to hire, this one resource that you don't want to forget, and that's our sponsor of today's show, People G2, a company founded in 2001 that's dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving your company access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available today on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. People G2 recently named one of the best places to work right here in Orange County, as well as one of the fastest-growing privately held companies by the Orange County Business Journal and recognized by the Inc. 5000 as one of the fastest-growing privately held companies nationwide. 
To learn more about all the services offered by People G2, just visit their website, www.peopleg2.com. That's peopleg2.com. Okay, and now let's get back to the show with Chris and his next guest. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. Uh, since we started the show, we've amassed a huge following uh, on iTunes and on the other podcasts, and well over 15,000 uh, people listening regularly uh, through that medium. We really appreciate it, and, and thank you for your support. My next guest is Kevin Cruz, a New York Times best-selling author and speaker on leadership. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now to him by sending them to at people t 2 and use the hashtag Talent Talk. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Good to be here. Great. Well, you know, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, uh, your latest book. We're uh, really interested in, in to learn more. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I uh, and, and, you know, I'm talking today from uh, Bucks County, just outside of Philadelphia, but I actually grew up in Orange County, in Yorba Linda, so not too far from uh, your stomping ground. Well, that's where I live, is Yorba Linda. What a, what a coincidence. Yeah, I went to uh, Troy High, which is near uh, n- near your, your alma yeah, mater as well. I, I went to Troy High as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when I when I when I went, it was a bad neighborhood. I hear it's a nice neighborhood now. Oh yeah, uh, it was great. I I, gra- I graduated in 1993, and it was a great great school. It's actually they've become a huge uh, science focus now. I think they've won their science olympiad for the state like 19 times in a row or something. So uh, it, that's amazing. They, they've only gotten better that. since I left. So. <laughs> Well, a lot better since I left. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your question. You know, I, um, you know, my, in just in the last uh, the year, I've got the fourth edition of my book, Employee Engagement 2.0, and uh, launched Employee Engagement for Everyone. And when people hear that I speak about this topic of leadership and employee engagement, you know, they often think or assume that I'm uh, an HR professional or maybe an academic or a consultant, you know, studying engagement. And actually, I'm just a small uh, small business guy. You know, I um, uh, started and sold uh, several businesses. I also started early on some that didn't work out. And I discovered employee engagement and the power of engagement just by by watching uh, the, the the power and the benefits in the workplace. And so when I sold uh, my last company, I guess it was about six years ago now. You know, I decided to take some time and, and invest some money into to researching, you know, really the, the science behind driving incredible employee engagement and motivation and commitment, and then trying to, to simplify the story so that um, certainly there's a lot of other stuff out there for HR professionals and academics, but I wanted to, to boil it down for people like me, you know, small business people, people managing a team, and anyone that's you know, just running and gunning crazy, but still wants to try to be a great uh, team builder along the way. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your insights on team motivation. You know, what does it really take to get the most out of the, the talent around you? Yeah, well, Chris, it's interesting. When I started doing research for the book several years ago, uh, I teamed up with an old an old partner and the, the Conexa Research Institute, and we looked at um, employee surveys from 10 million people in 150 countries. Um, so, I, you know, to my knowledge, the biggest employee survey database, uh, you know, that's ever been looked at for engagement. And there was a team of uh, OD psychologists crunching the data, 
And they came at me, and they were really proud. They said, um, you know, wow, we found these 10 drivers of employee engagement, you know, 10 factors that we can show statistically drive, you know, engagement, how we feel about work. And um, I laughed, and I told them, you know, if you tell me 10 things, I'm not going to remember any of them. And I certainly am not going to remember how to put them into practice day to day or week to week. So I said, you know, um, boil it down to one thing for me. Like, what's the most important thing? And they, you know, sort of made fun of me. They said, uh, you know, I was trying to be um, like the curly of, uh, of leadership from City Slickers where he just puts up his finger and says, you know, the secret to life is one thing. And um, they came back and said, look, you know, Kevin, it's not one thing, but we did discover that three things uh, correlate to over 70% of, of how we feel uh, at work. And um, uh, the first one is growth. You know, are we feeling like we're learning new things and being challenged? The second was recognition, and do I feel appreciated at work? And the third was trust, and it's not so much about uh, ethics. Like it's, it's, you know, not that I trust you're not going to rob from me. It was more about trust in the future. I want to trust that my job's going to be here tomorrow, that my company's going to be thriving, and that our leaders are going to take us to the promised land. You know, we've got a goal, and I trust that we're going to get there. And in addition to those three things, I mean, the other finding, which, which you know, we expected because a lot of other groups have reported on it, is most of how we feel about our jobs comes from our relationship with our boss. So as much as, you know, the CEOs, the, the C-level folks um, hopefully care about engagement and try to do things, um, it's really made or broken right down at that frontline manager. You, know, you, have, you could have a great company and a bad manager, and you won't be engaged. You could have a, a poor company, but a fantastic leader, a fantastic manager, and you'll feel some engagement at work. So th those were so, some of the, the initial key findings. Well, and that's fascinating, especially about the, really, it's, it's your boss that that can really drive that. I mean, you can have a great boss, like you said, and in a terrible organization or with a terrible idea or, you know, or even just lackluster, just kind of a boring thing, but a great leader can really can push that. And you can have, we've seen this before, I mean, great companies or great ideas uh, that never get off anywhere. I mean, we, we've had many guests talk about when they, you know, from angel investors and venture capitalists, that very often they're betting on the jockey and not the horse, meaning they're, they're betting on the person, the one driving it, the leader driving the organization more so than they are really betting on the idea or the company uh, because it has such an impact on the organization as a whole and, and where people go. But even scarier, what you're saying is that you could go down to even like a, they trust the CEO, let's say, or the founder, but ultimately, you know, that they're, their self, not their self worth, but their interaction and how they feel about their their job really goes down to that one on one with that manager who's who's kind of overseeing them on a day to day basis, and that, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, and, and you know, it, I was surprised at this, but where where you can really see it uh, from the data is in companies that have uh, retail locations. So it might be I'm just you know using I'm making up these company names. It could be a Gap clothing store with a thousand locations. It could be uh, a McDonald's with you know thousands of locations. Whatever the chain might be, a Target, whatever. And you run an engagement survey through their organization, and you can see that okay, you know it's a company that's doing well, and let's say they have an average of a 4.0 out of a five uh, scale. And so most of the individual stores. You know, you'll get a 4.1, a 3.9, a 4.0, a 3.9, but then all of a sudden you'll see a 2.2, .2, you know, in a store. Same CEO, 
same mission vision values, same compensation, same benefits, same health plan, same training, same cash registers, often the same cookie cutter building, the environment's the same. What's the only thing that's different? Who's the manager of that location? Who's the manager of that store? And so that's where, you know, it, it's really hard to argue with this point is when you see these, these massive companies with multiple locations and in general, everybody kind of goes to a, to a mean, an average, and then you get these outliers and the only difference is who's running the place. Right. Yeah. It's amazing the impact they have. It's probably a little bit, uh, uplifting for, for those people that maybe, through data or whatever that someone up at the top can recognize, especially in these very large organizations, that there is a problem because probably not very easy to let anybody know that, hey, they've, they've got a pretty rotten manager here uh, who, who's making things not very fun for them. But through this kind of large data aggregate, there may be a way for someone up top to realize, hey, there might be a problem here and we need to go in there and investigate. Um, is that something you, you, you do or is it more you're kind of exposing the idea uh, about what's what's important for an organization. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, the well, to your point, I mean, that, that is um, a, the great value out of employee engagement surveys. Um, you know, I don't offer that uh, myself. I pretty much spend all of my time now just writing on leadership and engagement and, and speaking on it to, to spread the gospel. Um, but but certainly, you know, that's why it is so important. I mean, if 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 company leaders want to drive uh, massive employee engagement, like anything else, if you want something to improve, you should measure it. And so, just as you're saying, you know, there's tremendous power in rolling out that employee engagement survey throughout the organization. And then, and this is key, because a lot of companies will just stop. They'll, they'll do the survey, and the C-suite looks at the, at the results and comes up with a couple ideas to drive engagement. That never works. What you've got to do is share the data back down so that every single manager you know, gets her own score and that the expectation is that she's going to share it out with the team and let the team members that report to her say, okay, you know, here's how we can improve, you know, communication around here. Here's some growth and developmental opportunities that we would look forward to. And, you know, I, I can remember once myself um, going through uh, this survey process when I had a, a, a medium-sized company at the time and one of the questions I got dinged on had to do with uh, the question was I have the I have the uh, equipment and tools I need to be successful at work, and it was one of my lowest questions. Now I had started up, you know, my first company. I, I literally um, lived in the office. I slept under my desk uh, and showered in the YMCA for a year, right? And I had desks made out of you know plywood tables. I had one computer. I was using lawn chairs as my uh, folding lawn chairs as my, my office chairs. I mean, it was horrible. Um, and so at the time this question goes out, and I had a pretty successful business. Everyone's got ergonomic chairs. Everyone's got double monitors. Everybody's running the latest software. You know, everything. It was just a beautiful class A office space. Why would they ding me on this question? I was getting bitter. I was getting defensive. But by, by sharing that data point out with the team and asking them, you know, so I frame it out. Hey, guys, our lowest score is on tools and equipment. Look at this. And I'm shocked because blah, blah, blah. I give them my bitter defensive standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then I finally ask them, tell me, what is it that, what would it take for you guys to give, uh, give me a five out of five on this? You know, what's, what are you looking for on this tool? And they all said the same thing. They said, 
oh, every now and then our clients, they're running off Apple computers and we don't have a Mac in the office. And so it's a real pain in the butt to try to use a simulator or we got to go home and test it out. Um, it would be great if we could get two Macintoshes in the office. I'm like, that's it? Fine, done. You know, <laughs> buy them, bill me. It, it was that simple, but I didn't have the idea. I thought I was the smartest guy in the room. I thought that it was all about double monitors and ergonomic chairs and everything else. And I never realized that they needed Mac computers and were bitter that I didn't have them. And mm -hmm. so using this employee engagement process, sharing the scores all the way down to the front lines and letting the ideas, the solutions come from the grassroots, that's how you drive uh, great engagement scores. So do you suggest that people kind of develop their own employee engagement surveys or are there particular systems or places where you typically send people to, to do that? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Chris. I don't want to leave people hanging like, well, yeah, that sounds great. Now what do I do? Look, if you're, um, if you're in a mid-size to a large company and have any kind of budget at all for morale and engagement, I do recommend people go to one of the large professional engagement survey companies. Uh, Conexa is a great one, K-E-N-E-X-A, uh, Hey Group, and, and, and Mercer and Gallup is a big one. Um, but that, that will cost you. But if you've got a large organization, that's the right way to go. Now, if you've got a mid-sized organization um, or, 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 you know, 100, even 100-person business, you can still use free online survey software like SurveyMonkey and uh, – use questions like I give um, in Employee Engagement 2.0, I hate to do the plug for the book, but for, you know, five bucks or whatever it is, you can get my book, and I've got a set of employee engagement questions in there. Mm -hmm. You can just type them into SurveyMonkey and uh, distribute the survey that way. It just needs to be, make sure it's, it's anonymous. And then what I tell people is, you know what, you might only have, you might have three people that report to you. Your company might be so small that it doesn't make sense to even do this simple free survey. You can still ask the questions. So even if it's not an official survey, gather the teams up and walk and you know walk them through the questions that are in my book, which are basically things like, um, you know, do, you know, do you feel you have the opportunities to learn and grow, you know, here in the company? What else would it take for you to feel good about your growth and learning? You know, do you feel appreciated at work? What else can we do to show appreciation and recognition for each other? So, you know, whether you use the big outside company like a Conexa or whether you do your own survey using SurveyMonkey or even just, you know, order a couple of pizzas and have an honest conversation about it, it's becoming mindful of it and getting some feedback on, on, on how you're doing. That's the key. Uh, some great advice, at least. So some practical ways that people want to you know, go and try to do that today. They, they at least have a direction to go, and I, I'm sure they won't mind paying, you know, five bucks for your book to, to pick up those questions <laughs> and throw them into a free survey. That's a small price to pay versus uh, some of the other larger brands out there that would probably charge a, just a few more dollars than that to yeah, put together exactly. a, a program. So, you know, I was, I was interested if you know, when you kind of give advice or talking into more of the C-suite level or in levels of management about kind of the best way to engage our employees so that they're kind of truly bought into the organizational goals of the company. You know, what other advice do you have in, in trying to, to really make sure that people are, are doing that? It's not just about you know, getting what they need, but really buying into the organizational goals. Yeah, you know, the, the, it's interesting. The, the, I mean, let me go back to that trust thing. Trust, again, it's not about ethics. It's about I trust the future. And so the future is about organizational goals, just what you're, you're asking about. And so what it comes down to is the employees need to know 
where they're going, like what is the goal, and then have some confidence that there's a plan to get there and to know how they fit in. And the key is to simplify it and to say it often. Um, you know, the business uh, author, uh, Jim Collins, wrote Good to Great. You know, he talks, mm-hmm. I like his work in this area, he talks about BHAGs. You know, it's an acronym for a big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. You know, a big goal that's five years out that can be simplified, that everybody knows and can rally around. And, you know, here's my favorite example of getting people to rally around an organizational goal. I got lots of them, but my favorite is Coca-Cola Company. You know, we all know Coke, Coca-Cola. And obviously a massive company. You know, they've got operations in 190 countries. They've got thousands of SKUs, thousands of products, um, complicated operations from, from, you know, partners and manufacturing and distribution and marketing and all this. You know that if you saw their strategic plan, I mean, it's probably, you know, a foot high and and weighs 30 pounds. There's no way all their employees are going to know what the strategic plan of Coca-Cola is globally. But what they've done is they've boiled down their entire plan to two words. It's called 2020 vision. So Coca-Cola's ultimate goal is to double revenue 2020 in the year 2020. So, you know, if next time you're in the grocery store and you see a uh, Coca-Cola person stock on the shelf, you could grab them. And if you said, hey, what's the strategic plan of Coca-Cola? They're like, what? You know, no idea. If you said, hey, I heard this Coca-Cola 2020 vision thing. What is that? They're going to, oh, yeah, we're doubling our revenue by the year 2020. Now, if you've got someone that maybe is, you know, in a management position, they might be able to tell you the next layer. Like the Coke has, I think it's the five P's. It's, you know, people and partners and position. You know, I can't remember them all myself, but, you know, they're going to know the next layer down. And right. obviously the higher up you go in Coca-Cola, the more you're going to know about the strategic plan or at least your division's part of the strategic plan. But it gives even that person, you know, the frontline worker, uh, trust in the future. I work for Coca-Cola. We got a plan, and man, it's cool. We're doubling our revenue. We're doubling our size. Well, we're not. We're not shrinking. We're not going away. We're not. We're not stagnant. We're doubling. We're doubling by 2020. And I know how I'm. You know, doing my job to do my part to help us to get there. So I think it really comes down to, you know, um, having that that like condensed version of the goal of the plan and making sure everybody, you know, everybody knows it. Um, and on this topic, you know, some of the other questions I get from the audience will be things like, you know, um, I, I, I'm a finance manager. I got three people reporting to me. I'm, you know, 50 levels away from our CEO. I don't influence our BHAG. I can't set the BHAG. I don't think we have a BHAG. And so my advice to, you know, sort of mid-level managers and things like that, or even individual contributors on this is, look, if you want to instill confidence in your team and get them to rally around this trust and future, First of all, go hunt a little. Maybe you've got, you could find it in the annual report or things like that. And if the data is out there, again, you know, grab two pizzas for lunch, invite everyone in and make it a fun team building exercise. Hey, how do we take this five point CEO plan to our investors and come up with a, a, a memorable acronym or a funny saying or boil it down into a rhyming sentence that we're all going to be able to remember? And if you just, if it's not there and it's just, there's no, nothing to work with, Create one for your own team. You know, hey, I'm in finance, so our goal is going to be to um, close the books within five days of the end of every month. So it's our, I don't know, you know, 5X close plan. I just made that up on the fly. But, like, you know, or, or 
you know, uh, have fewer entries or faster turnaround time or whatever it is. You know, you can make your own goal for your team. It's, it's, it, in a way, it almost doesn't matter what it is. It's a psychological thing where we're, as a worker, you know, we're part of a tribe, we're part of a family, and we want to know we're going in a direction, we're improving, we're growing, we're moving faster, and we're part of that. So, you know, if, if it comes from down the top of the mountain, hey, that's great. Uh, otherwise, look for the data and see if you can do it yourself. And if the data's not there, just make one up for your own team. So that kind of gets back into, you know, people can have these big goals and ideas and, and things, but ultimately they need employee engagement to, to really drive that, right? It needs to come, like right. you said, from that person stocking the shelves, you know, to the to the CEO at Coke, you know, that, that everyone along that 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 route there, that, that line of people needs to be engaged. So why is it, do you think, employee, employee engagement is a skill that really companies fall short on? Yeah, you know, you know I, I struggle with that a little bit myself, Chris, because you're right, you know, the, the depending on which survey you look at, there's about only about one in three workers are engaged at work. So two-thirds are, are either actively disengaged or they're just neutral. Only one-third are engaged. And uh, there, there's lots of, of studies out there that show that engagement leads to higher profits and a higher stock price. It gets great results, and it's because – you know, uh, engagement is an emotional commitment to the organization and its goals. And when we're committed, we give discretionary effort. You know, a, a salesperson sells a little harder. Quality control person is a little more attentive to, to, to bugs. Service people try harder to solve problems. You know, so when you're selling more, servicing better, you know, uh, more productive, fewer mistakes and accidents, all that ultimately leads to higher growth and profits, which leads to higher stock price. So back to your question. Why isn't everybody working on this and figuring it out? And I think that, um, unfortunately, at the C-level, there's a lot of misconceptions. So in the C-suite, you know, they think, oh, employee engagement, that's about making our employees happy, right? That's a nice-to-have, or let's just do another picnic or casual Fridays or, you know, an uh, extra 1% bonus or something. Mm -hmm. You know, engagement isn't happiness. Engagement is emotional commitment to the organization. There's a big difference. And so um, the, the companies that make engagement a priority, like a top three or four priority, when they, when they measure it, share the data, and hold managers accountable, they move that needle. Um, you know, Doug Conant turned around Campbell Soup Company in 10 years. They were ready to go bankrupt. It was like back in, I don't know, 90 or something like that. And, you know, they had horrible engagement scores. But he made it a priority, one of the top four cornerstones of Campbell Soup, measured it, shared the results, and when 300 of their 350 managers didn't get on board the program after two years, he basically fired them and promoted people who were going to be good coaches and, and leaders of engagement. And, you know, after 10 years, Campbell Soup came roaring back and outperformed the stock market by uh, fourfold. So, you know, I think it's just that at the highest levels, they don't truly believe that there is a direct correlation between engagement and profits or they're, they're misunderstanding that engagement just means like, oh, you know, foosball tables and parties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those those things really aren't the things that, that drive the results. Yeah, those are sometimes cheaper things or things that are cheap, I mean, as in quality. They're just, you know, right. not really going to work. So, you, you know, when you're not reading uh, em Employee Engagement 2.0, uh, one of our one of our favorite questions to ask our, our uh, guests is, you know, what are you reading right now? Because it really 
kind of gives us a good insight on maybe where we should be looking or other ideas uh, for our own development. So if you have a book maybe you're reading right now, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, Chris, I'm a voracious uh, reader. I try to read one or two books um, a week, actually. And, you know, I'm always posting up book summaries and book reviews and things, and, and um, which makes publishers send me them, too, because, you know, for <laughs> for some book love. And, you know, one that really hit me that I don't hear anybody talking about, didn't get much mojo on sales. So, you know, this is sort of one that wouldn't be uh, commonly, you know, talked about. It's called... Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks by August Turak, T-U-R-A-K. And basically, it's about this um, very successful entrepreneur CEO that um, goes and, and lives with a bunch of monks. And it's kind of his understanding about, um, you know, our search for meaning and authenticity, but not just as, you know, spiritual, religious folks, but just in our day-to-day lives and how we can – uh, embrace authenticity as business leaders, as entrepreneurs, and really use it almost as a like a weapon for advantage, as a as a competitive advantage. So that's business secrets of the Trappist monks. Of the Trappist monks, and what was the author again? Yeah, August Turak, T U R A K. It's just fascinating. Every week we get such such variety in what you know uh, people are reading. Uh, sometimes it's an incredible business book, like maybe the one you've mentioned, uh, or the ones that you've written. And of course, we also get people who read uh, autobiographies or history books, or you know, just it, it, it really is fascinating as to what people are reading and where they're kind of putting their attention into their own uh, kind of personal development and growth. And uh, we love learning about it. So, That's uh, great. you know, how can people uh, learn more about you and the stuff that you've written if they're interested in, in reaching out? Yeah, the easiest way, Chris, is just to go to my website, which is kevincruz.com, and it's spelled K-R-U-S-E, Kevin, K-R-U-S-E dot com. Uh, and that's a great place to start. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And I um, really look forward to meeting, you know, any and all of your listeners and keeping the conversation going. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate it. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest, and we've really enjoyed uh, learning more about uh, what you're doing and uh, what you kind of bring to the table for employee engagement. It's, it's been uh, fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. So that's all the time we have today. Thank you again to my special guests, Jeff Dunn and Kevin Cruz. Tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Talent Talk, brought to you by People G2, to hear Steve uh, Cannell in charge of community uh, commerce and partnerships for Miller Coors, and also Josh Ritchie, CEO of uh, Column 5 Media, I know Josh was an Inc. 5000 winner, and I also sat next to him on the plane on the way to the conference. So looking forward to catching up with them. Until then, uh, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping their clients with their people-related decisions. 